On today's episode, I chatted with Alison Turkos, who is an activist at the forefront of driving for change to make our world safer, more just, more equitable, especially for survivors of sexual assault. Allison sued Lyft, the rideshare company. They were one of the driving forces behind the law in New York State, which enabled E.J. Carroll to sue Donald Trump for rape. And they are someone who is constantly shaping the conversation around survivors and storytelling and how to build a better world. Allison and I talked about all of this in ways I perhaps didn't expect, but deeply needed and wanted. This is a conversation about the stories we tell and how so often our culture is shaped around the the worst, the most, the most extreme, finding the moments of pain and darkness and really focusing on them as if the worst things don't happen within the context of our wider world, as if survivors don't have more to them and owe us their stories in order to fight for justice, which just isn't the case. There's so much more room for humanity in all of this. And Allison is someone who drives for that and believes in that and speaks with such empathy and honesty about it. We also talked about change making and for someone like them who is a change maker at a systemic scale, it's often difficult for the rest of us to aspire to make change at that level, but we can all be change makers and we can all be activists within our own communities, within the conversations we have, within the ways we spend our money. It, it doesn't have to always be big sweeping change, it's, it's about the little revolutions, that's the name of this podcast after all. And Allison really embodies that in the most beautiful ways. I haven't been able to stop thinking about this conversation. I'm recording this introduction a few days later, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about the things Allison said and the ways in which they saw the world and the ways in which they saw the potential for all of us to make a better world together. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I really loved having it. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So to get us started, we don't like to define people. We don't like to define anyone for themselves. So how would you like to introduce yourself? How would you like people to know who you are? Sure. My name is Allison Turcos. My pronouns are they and them. I am a survivor justice. I'm really trying to not use the word activist anymore. Um, so I am a multiple sexual assault survivor. Um, and I do a lot of work in the world helping survivors of sexual assault and gender-based violence, telling their stories publicly. Um, I've also recently really gotten into crossword puzzles, and I do a lot of work in the world really just trying to help people tell their stories. Um, and yeah, I guess just like live their lives as best they can. That's a lovely definition. Thank you for that. I'm gonna, it's, it's the word activist comes up a lot because I interview lots of people like you who are, we're all in the same fight to try and make our world safer, more just, more equitable. And the word activist for a lot of us is a a word we like think about a lot and people have lots of feelings about. And I'm curious about what what got you to the place where you're like, oh, I don't I don't like to use that word. Um, it, shocking to no one and very similar to I think so many of us. I saw it somewhere on the Internet um, and I think I saw it on Instagram and I can't remember. I'm really sad that I can't remember the exact source, um, but I feel very confident that it was um, a person of color. And they were talking about how they were basically asking people in their community to no longer identify as activists because we don't want to make activists or activism this thing that we should strive to or this role that only some people play, right? And so it should be something where, you know, I come on and talk to you and I say, hi, my name is Allison. I'm an activist because it sort of separates me from other people in my life or my community. Um, and activism should be something that is um, just threaded into our everyday life. Right. So um, 
case in point, like yesterday I was having a conversation with someone or a few people in my community about like the body positivity movement and anti-diet dietitians. And that conversation, in my opinion, was not activism. It was just like having really honest conversations about anti-fat bias and fat phobia and fat bodies. And like that is how we should be living activism every single day. Um, and so I'm really thoughtful about not no longer identifying as an activist because I am someone who um, I, t I really try to live and operationalize my values every single day. And so to me, that means I live in um, I spend a lot of my time in Vermont and I live in this cute little town. And uh, I really try to live and operationalize my values in the sense of rather than going to like a major corporate grocery store, I try to buy all my things locally or from local farmers markets or um, CSAs. And so, right. So like some people would think that's like activism, whereas to me, it's just like <laughs> if I need milk, I'm not going to get in my car and drive somewhere. I'm, I'm going to go somewhere more locally. Um, and then I think on a very broader scale or a more systemic scale, it's the idea that um, you know, if I'm like in New York City and if I see some people on a subway or on the street, you know, maybe like having an argument, my thought is, you know, how can I be helpful? I'm obviously going to always assess the situation, but it comes down to like, you know, can I support this regarding bystander intervention? And never bringing attention to the argument, but coming in, you know, I've lived in New York City for years. I lived in New York City for years, but coming in and saying like, hi, where is X? Like, where is the, the nearest coffee shop? Or I'm trying to find the Empire State Building, you know, and just like helping to just like decrease and de-escalate the situation. And um, so like that's a form of activism, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that we have, um, and again, this is not mine. I saw this from yeah. somewhere, else, somewhere else and I'll try to find the source. Um, but the idea that we have really just like elevated this role of an activist and people, you know, I have a lot of teenagers in my life and, and young people are like, I want to grow up and be an activist. And it's like, baby love, you can be an activist every single day in your school, on your campus, at your dinner table. Um, and so that's why I'm I'm really moving away from identifying as an activist. I, I really love that. It, I've been thinking a lot about that and even like thinking about this conversation. I did not expect it to start in this direction, but it's something that was like very top of mind for me and is top of mind right now is just the idea for me, at least that the the quote unquote activism or like the work of like trying to make our world safer and better for all of us should be how we live, right? It's like embodied in our values and how we live in. It shouldn't, it, it can be a profession, but there's something like really icky is the only word I can come up with. Like, I feel a sense of friction of like, this is your day job and it can be a day job, right? And it is for a lot of people, but there's like this distance that even I have always felt, even though my work has always been activist work or work that is like trying to do something, but it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not an activist because I'm not on the front lines and like, I don't do this and that. And it's like, but I'm having the, the tough conversations and I'm trying to make my world better. Right. And I think um, like there's, I have a really beautiful chosen family and two people in those chosen family are um, these two really great teenagers and a lot of their friends and community. And so I'm really grateful that I get to spend time with, you know, the youth or the teens as, as I call yeah. them. And so like, I spent some time with this really great 17-year-old um, uh, earlier this week, and we were working on a school project about harm reduction, right? And so, like, getting to spend time with a junior in high school, like, we're talking about liberatory harm reduction, talking about who Shira Hassan is, talking about that, you know, drug use is not a moral good, and that every, you know, everyone who uses drugs 
And that, you know, he has a lot of people in his life who, you know, are drug users in the sense that, you know, like they might drink, they might, you know, consume yeah. cannabis, right? And that does not make them better or worse than someone who is approaching a safe injection site, right? So like, we're just sitting at a table eating like, you know, some quinoa and some vegetables and like, you know, drinking seltzer. And, but to me, that is a way that I can like live activism or be an activist, right? Or some people might think that I don't think that I just think that like me and this like badass young person in my life that we're just getting to have a conversation and then that he's going to go into his school and present this project and he, and people might think of him as an activist and he's like, no, y'all, we're just talking about liberatory harm reduction. And so I think also when it comes to so many people who are like activists are also deeply anti-capitalist. Mm -hmm. And I think it's funny. And I love the term friction. I sometimes use the word prickly. Like that makes me feel prickly um, that we're like holding both truths that we're simultaneously anti-capitalist, but yet we like want to be paid for our work, which we should be like, everyone should be paid for their labor without a doubt. Um, but a lot of the work that I do, I'm not paid for. Like so much of the work that I do in the survivor justice world, I'm not paid for, right? Um, like I'm a plaintiff in lawsuits. I'm not paid for that work. When I tell my story publicly, I'm not paid for that work. Um, and I think it's also, you know, and then you do have like professional activists and, you know, they're, you know, doing great things and I love that for them. Um, mm. But not all of us can do that. It's also, I think sometimes activism spaces can be very ableist, um, you know, and there's just a lot of, there's so many pockets, right? There's like language justice, there's disability justice. Um, you know, do you have white folks who are talking about their whiteness, right? Like I'm a queer non-binary person, but like first and foremost, I am white. My whiteness supersedes everything. Um, and like shout out to the black and brown folks in my life who like, you know, they didn't need to do that labor, right? But like, I did a lot of work to get there. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that like, we can have an entire conversation about activism and maybe we will, but I just think that for me, it's something that like, I am really moving away from identifying as an activist and I attempt to live, eat and breathe it in like every single space that I am in and particularly in my interpersonal relationships. It's also interesting, and we can get off this topic after this question, but it's just interesting, even the word work, the way you used it there, which I, again, we probably live in similar circles. So I have, I have used it in that way. And I have seen people around me use it in that way. of like, it isn't the thing that you are paid to do, right? It isn't necessarily the, the, like the profession, the job, but sharing your story is also work, but it's like, how do we define doing the work in like, we capitalize doing the work, right? Like there's doing the work, but like, what does that actually mean? And how do you define it? And do we need to define it, right? Like, do we need to quantify what doing the work looks like? Because sometimes, at least around me, it's, it's the smallest stuff, right? It's a white person noticing the microaggression and calling it out because I don't feel safe doing that. And that to me, is like doing the work. And for them, it might've just been like a clocked it, said something, moved on. But it's it's work. And I'm curious about like how you got to this point where you're like, actually me sharing my story, maybe a plaintiff in a case is work, even though maybe the world around me isn't calling it work. Yeah, I love this question. I'm loving this conversation. Um, it took me a long time. It took me a lot of therapy. It took a lot of um, patience. I was going to use a swear word, but I won't, but it took a lot of patience from my you can community. Also, okay. You can it also took a lot of, word. it took a lot of fucking patience from my community. Um, because so, um, 
I experienced a very violent assault and kidnapping in 2017. And I filed two very large and what might be considered like landmark lawsuits in 2019. And I had never been as a privilege. Like I grew up in a very small town in Vermont. Still to this day, my hometown does not have a traffic light. Like it is like small, small, small town. And I never interacted with the police. My family was not like pro-police to the point that my parents were like, the cops are safe, but they just didn't exist. We didn't have uh, local police, anything. And so when I was like making the decision to file a police uh, lawsuit against the New York City Police Department for the mishandling of my own rape investigation um, and kidnapping investigation, it was something that I, at that point in time, I was so like in it that I didn't have like the 10,000 foot level um, that I do now of like, this is going to be a lot of work. My lawyers had told me and like some other people in my life had told me. Um, but then as I realized, and I had also made the decision like to be a public facing survivor. So like my name was, you know, I'm, I'm named, etc. And over the years, I realized that like, I use this term called a vulnerability hangover. So like after I tell my story, even honestly, like today, like yeah. after I do something where I'm telling my story or I'm doing something in sort of a public facing space, um, I have what I call a vulnerability hangover. And it just means that like, I'm probably just going to be really tired. Um, I just need to sort of like be insular and just give myself some space and some time to just sort of like come down from it. Um, and as I started to do it more and more, I realized that, um, it was something that like we sort of weren't talking about. Um, and I think of Renee Bracey Sherman, who does a lot of work on the abortion storytelling side of things. And I like I, that's like my I'm not a fan of like the term political home, but like my I, my career sort of started in the abortion space. And I saw what Renee was doing in the abortion storytelling space. And I was identifying I've never had an abortion, but I was identifying with a lot of that, of the idea of like, why aren't we paying storytellers? Why aren't we seeing this as work, as this as labor? And as I started to do a lot of storytelling of my own and then organizing of survivors to tell their stories and to sort of start to organize us in a way, um, I started to just sort of like gently nudge people and be like, are you being paid? Am I being paid? Are we being paid? Are you, this is labor? Like, why is no one? Because the thing that we as a society love to do is we love to extract trauma from people and we love to be like tell us the worst thing that happened to you tell me about how there was a gun being held to your head while you were being sexually assaulted tell me how you were in tears in the back of that car tell me tell me tell me and people just like eat it up and that is very hard to do but because that was what society wanted from me i became in a very unhealthy and disassociated way, I was great at being like, let me just rip open my body and tell you the most horrific things that have happened to me. And I could do it in a way where it was just like robotic, like this is my trauma, mm -hmm. right? And I never wanted that for other survivors. And so as I slowly did a lot of work in therapy, I was like, oh, I'm not going to talk about that. Like, if you want to know the worst things that happened to me, cool, you can read it on the internet or on other podcasts, or you can Google me like, fine, yeah. it's there. And I started to talk more about like my self-preservation. And I started to be like, the worst thing that happened to me is not what I did, what is like the center of this. Yeah. And so then what, anytime that I would start to do work with people and like to do any sort of campaigns, or we would talk about like activations that we're doing around, you know, accountability facilitation, 
and folks would talk about storytelling, I would always say to them, like, where is your self-preservation in this? Like, we don't need to be out here, like, screaming the names of abusers, which is fine, and that's not me knocking that that sort of work. But, like, how are we centering our self-preservation? And, like, what do we need? And how can we move forward? And if there's an organization that is leading this, um, like, are we being paid for our time off from work? Are we being paid for who's paying for our childcare? If we have to drive, if we're taking, getting on a plane or hotels, like who is compensating us for our labor? Because, you know, people love when we as survivors are going to congressional hearings or telling our stories or, you know, speaking to the press, but they're not thinking about like what it does to us. And I think the other thing that really happens in, in any type of any person who's experienced sexualized violence is that we love people love to think of us as like brave and resilient and strong but i don't want to uplift a society that's celebrating resilience anymore i want to dismantle that society where resilience is something to be celebrated and i want us to be more thoughtful about like fuck resilience i just want us to be like soft and cared for and loved and to be having conversations around like my humanity as a survivor i want to be talking about like sex after sexual assault i want to be talking about the fact that like it's i want to start dating but i've wanted to start dating for six for three years and it's been really hard for me intimacy after sexual assault right so like all of these things that are wedded into it um and like that's the work but i'm trying to it's hard to find people who want to have those conversations um so yeah to me it's just the idea that like people don't always want to pay especially women and queer folks and people of color for their labor and so a way for me as Brittany Packett Cunningham taught me to spend my privilege is to be like you will be paying us like mm-hmm. we won't show up and do this unless you're paying us um and that was a bell that I really rang when we were trying to pass the Adult Survivors Act in New York State um was like going to all of the or- the nonprofits and the organizations and was like cool we'll go to your lobby days but like Where's my money? Oh, there's so much in that. Everything you just said that I, there's so much I want to talk to you about because it feels like we think very similarly about a lot of the brokenness of our society mm-hmm. and our culture. Um, and I, I get the first thing that like struck me in as you started talking about this is also the the like the trauma porn angle of culture and media and change making. Um, is it also really like homogenizes ex- what we expect experiences to look like, right? Um, and that is so exhausting because there are the worst scenarios, right? There are the like the worst things that happen and that people are asking you to to kind of break down and share, but also so much of it isn't the the worst or only the worst. And we create this like expectation that people survivors live within a a bubble that is just like the dark scary true crime podcast and not that their partner at home is abusive or that it happened on a first date or it happened in a lift Mm -hmm. or it happened from a colleague like it that all goes away we strip out all the context and it just becomes here is the worst and it's it's so exhausting and it's so endemic yeah and i think um like I'm fully accountable to myself that I participated in that, right? So like from, I first told my story on May 8th of 2018 um, in a piece in the Wall Street Journal. And it was about how the New York City Police Department was failing survivors of sexual assault 
and I just talked right and like my photo was there but I will never forget the photographer her name was Caitlin Ox and she the photo editor at the Wall Street Journal wanted to take the photo inside my apartment and I pushed back and I said this the driver of the lift knows where I live and I don't want people knowing what the inside of my house looks like like that doesn't feel good to me and so Caitlin who was this like badass female feminist um photographer came and met me outside of my house in crown heights brooklyn and caitlin was like let's take photos of you in the light like let's take just badass photos of you and we just like walked around crown heights and it really like set a tone for me because Mm -hmm. now whenever i see photos of some survivors um and charlotte is a good friend of mine so this won't be upsetting but like when charlotte bennett came forward in the New York times, like her photo is in like a dark wooden, right. And it's, and, and I said this, right. And I just always think that like, why are we putting Charlotte in a box? Like, why is Charlotte like, right. And, and it's like, it's just like, it's enclosed. It's very dark. And Charlotte is a badass, looks like a badass in that photo. But my thought, and any time that I talk to survivors and they're like, I'm going to, you know, um, and I'm like working with a survivor and a journalist, the thing that I always say is like, be outside, be in the light, just like be just surrounded by like greenery or floral or anything, but just like be surrounded by brightness because it's something that, um, and again, I will never forget this photographer who really, who like imprinted that on me. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it's like when I started telling my story, I thought that the thing that people wanted to hear was the worst parts. Also, because that was a thing that journalists were asking so I like replicated that cycle and I'm I'm like as I know accountability can only be a voluntary act we can't hold people accountable so I'm like voluntarily accountable to the fact that like I perpetrated that cycle right I was like trauma porning everywhere and um that's not to say right like pain like it's not to say that if you there are survivors out there who have done it or will do it in the future it's not for better or for worse, right? It's just to me that like, there is so much more to who you are than mm-hmm. the worst thing that happened to you and to your pain, right? And there's a way for us to talk about our pain that isn't, you know, me saying, you know, in the month of October in 2017, yeah. I, th- these things happen, right? And for me, like there are ways to talk about my pain that I can talk really openly about like, like the impact that it had on my community. Like it's really, really hard to love someone and to see them going through a hard time and not knowing the right thing to say. It's really, really hard to have someone who you love go through a hard time and have them not respond to text messages. And just like, like there were like weeks where I would just like disappear and I would be MIA and my best friends wouldn't know what to do. And I would just like show up at bars and would get and would drink too much and would, and I wouldn't know what to do with my anger and right. And like, that's really hard. And my friends didn't know what to do. And they just kept trying to show up for me and they did, but they were like, this is very difficult. Right. And like, that's a way to talk about our pain that doesn't involve like the actual physical trauma. Um, And it took me a long time to get there, but I think also because I spent a lot of time in therapy, like with a therapist talking about the trauma. Yeah. And right, and doing it in a way that was like in my like that felt healthy to me. Yeah. Versus just like word vomiting it to people 
who were just like eating it like a spoon. It's also you didn't really have a blueprint, right? Like there isn't when we look around, yes, you can take accountability for what felt right for you in the moment to share and how you wanted to live through it. But also everyone around you, the culture around you had a certain kind of narrative and that that like continues, which is so hard. And people like you are starting to break that mold, right? Even with the taking photos outside, like as you were describing that, I've thought about journalists I've worked with who've been like, you want to, like I've reported around the world and they'd be like, you want to find a, a rape victim? I'm like, what are you talking about? I asked you to interview a woman who had migrated and you're giving me survivors. But like, this is not A equals B, right? But that's, it's also, they, that's what their editors have told them will sell. That's what people have decided collectively with our attention as well. That's what the algorithms now have decided to like uplift or downlift. And there's, we're all part of a system and it feels like the system rewards something. Oh yeah. And so I'm just always thinking exactly what you said about like systemically, like what can we do on a systemic level? Right. And that takes time. Like I cannot express to people enough that like if being a plaintiff in a lawsuit, suing a rideshare company and a billionaire, a billion dollar tech company, the largest police force in the country and like doing systemic work, also like being on the abortion justice side of things, like doing anything on a systemic level, I have like never had to know patients more. And knowing what I also refer to as like relentless incrementalism, right? So it's just the idea that like, I think a lot of folks love like a really big win. So they love, you know, like, like, I guess I also want to like change, you know, elected officials in office and like all those things. Like I love a policy win. But I also like love a small thing. So like I am currently supporting, excuse me, a few survivors who are actively reporting a sexual assault within the NYPD. And they'll find me through either word of mouth or the Internet and they'll just either DM me or find me on my website, etc. And the from the time that like they're having an issue in their um, case to the time that we're able to like, you know, find out where their rape kit is or, you know, like get their case moved to a different detective, etc. It took me like years. It's taking us now like a couple weeks, right? Which is, right, it's terrible. Yeah. Like a couple weeks is still a long time, but yeah. that to me is like great. It's like, okay, we know who to go to. Yeah. You know, they might mention to someone like, well, I was speaking with Allison Turcos and they, and cops are like, whoa, 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 you're talking to Allison. Okay, this is, <laughs> right? Yeah. And to me, it's like, okay, that's a win. That now, like NYPD is like, we gotta get our shit together more. Um, and so that's the other thing that I think about this is that like when you're doing work like this, we can have really small wins that like those of us inside the work are celebrating. And then you have larger wins that everyone outside is like, that's amazing. And it's like, yeah, but also it's great that the Department of Justice is investigating the NYPD Special Victims Division. I also know that investigation is going to take years. So cool. How did you get to having this patience? Were you always a patient person? I asked as a very impatient person. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. No, literally the most impatient person ever. I, to be honest, I, I, um, I think it's really, I'm also like going to get off the phone and text my closest friends and be like, do you think I've always been patient? Um, and they might even tell me that I'm not patient today, which I'd love to hear. Um, I think it's the idea that, um, knowing that like 
there's a lot of good work that happens behind the scenes. And so to me, like being inside both the criminal legal system, so like reporting to the NYPD and then it going to the FBI and being inside like the federal criminal system and then being really inside like the civil legal systems, so like being a plaintiff in lawsuits and knowing that, like I said this before, but like the system is not made for us. And by us, I say as like survivors or people who have been harmed, but like as a white person, the system was like made and built for me, right? Like white cis straight dudes like built that system. But then I started to realize that like I was doing a lot of sort of just like calling out or what I, I just sort of called myself like a squawking duck. Like I would just be like, this isn't working, you know, whatever. And then I just needed to like take a step back and be like, how can I be most helpful here? What am I missing? Who are the people in positions of power? Who's like an ally here that I wouldn't assume is an ally here? Um, and then I realized that like the amount of energy that I was putting out at just like screaming at cops, at lawyers, at federal prosecutors, at making my entire life, my lawsuits, my trauma, my criminal case. And I wasn't making space for other things, right? Like I thought I was, like I'd go have like waffles with my friend's kids on Saturdays, but like then I was just diligently checking my email and seeing if someone, if an investigator had, had called me or was talking about the case. And I was like, I've lost my sense of self. Like I don't, that's why at the beginning of this, I was like, oh, I've gotten into crossword puzzles. Cause I'm like, who am I? Yeah. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm into. I have no hobbies. And I'm just trying to like become like literally at the age of 35, I'm trying to become a person again because my life was consumed by what happened to me. And I'm like, do I want to learn how to knit? Like, I, right. Like I, I recently came out as non-binary and it's like a whole other conversation, but a huge part of it was because being inside the system, it was like, you have to present as female. It was yeah. like, you will be more credible. They wouldn't let me cut my hair. They wouldn't let me date. And I was like, okay, so like, I have to be cis in order to be deemed believable and credible in the system. And then once I like got out of that system, I was like, oh, oh no, 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 no. Like, I'm not like, I'm, this isn't who I am. Um, and so yeah, I think for me, it's like, I just needed to like slow the fuck down and to get to know myself more. And then with that, it came like having a life outside of what happened to me. But again, six years later, I'm still like trying to do that. It, it sounds a lot like also just claiming and reclaiming your humanity, right? Where it's both in the, it's the quote unquote, like perfect victim that you we're told to be to be believed which is ridiculous um and then like in in the work as well like if it becomes it, it is like a, a core part of what you want to put your put your time toward your energy toward and your heart toward and it's like okay well this is everything then because i imagine that's also where you're finding community that's where you're spending your hours and and it's hard because no one actually tells us how to create space for ourselves as people and to to figure out who we are as people yeah, no, and I think also, um, like, for me, like, I'll never forget the day when I was on the phone with, a, like, an FBI, like, victim advocate. Mm -hmm. His name was Bruce, so I'll just say, I'll say that. And Bruce literally told me that, um, like, 
it would be best if I didn't date. At that point in time, I had very long hair. Or, no, I had short hair. But he told me that it'd be best if I didn't cut my hair and if I grew it out. And, like, all of these things would be better for me to be a more believable, incredible victim on the stand. Like, if I had ever, like, had to go in front of a grand jury or a jury if it went to a jury trial. And I internalized that, like, so deeply. Um, And you know, there was a time in my life where I was like very femme presenting. Um, but it just, and then like my entire life really in both some like very like, um, like at the forefront ways and also just like very subconscious ways just became about like, how, like, how will this present in front of a jury? How will this present in front? What will lawyers think of this? What will prosecutors think of this? What is my FBI agent going to think of this? And I was, I can't fat, like I was just insufferable. Like hanging out with me at times was insufferable because I'd be like, whoa, 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 can't like I'm I had this amazing bodysuit and it like was a bodysuit and it had this like very deep cut in the back and I stopped wearing it because the feds were like also just like don't dress like a slut. And I was like, okay, and then I was like, Am I dressing like a Mennonite? Like what? It just right and it just became and so it's sort of like I'm like on this journey to like find out who I am because like even if my you know NYPD lawsuit you know even if these lawsuits go to trial I'm just like y'all I cannot give my life over to you because it's just so deeply unhealthy but um yeah I was having dinner with some with some new friends trying to make community and there was this dude sitting across from me and I like casually mentioned that I hadn't dated in six years and he like almost spit out his food and was like, what? Oh my, ah, and was, you know, flabbergasted him. And he was like, how, why? And I was like, oh, you know, I was like, I went through a really traumatic event and it's been really hard for me and I'm like trying to get there. Um, but I'm like, yeah, I don't know how you go on a first date. And you're like, oh, thanks. Like the feds told me I couldn't date and now I'm 35 and I'm trying, right. I'm like, how, tell me how you bring that up on a first date. Right. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm like, I think I'm just falling back in love with myself. Well, that's beautiful. And it sounds, we all, we all need that. Right. We all need that. It also, it just sounds like it's a, the, like the struggle of you want to change the system and then do you have to play by all the like, it's unachievable, right? Like that's the that's the thing no one tells you, at least I feel like no one tells you is you can play by all the rules and still it's not gonna, like the system isn't built for us. So it's a, do I optimize? At least that's how I think about things which are not, not going through your experiences, but like, do I just optimize myself to fit within the boxes and like be the perfect whatever that is needed so I can like open a door or be believed or walk through here and it's, but the system was never built for me. So I'm never going to be the perfect anything. And when you realize that, or when I realized that it was like a, a switch flipped. And I was like, oh, I could just be myself instead. Cause it's anyways, never going to work. Yeah. I think um, for me, it was also like, there were these like little moments where I realized that like, there, like in my case, there were no criminal charges. Right. So like I, I did what like, society tells us to do right like I reported I got a kit done whatever and as I slowly started to realize that like there were some moments where um I remember like being on the phone with the feds at one point in time and 
federal prosecutors were like arguing over my case because it would have been the first federal prosecution against a rideshare driver and it would have been like a make or break case for their career and it would have been huge and I was like sitting on the floor at a staff meeting shout out to my friend Lauren because she came out and gave me a great post-it note and I'm just like sobbing and the one, one of the FBI agents on my case was like, so federal prosecutors, there isn't a prosecutor assigned to your case yet because they're arguing over yet, arguing over it. And in the middle of just sobbing, I said to him, like, if there's going to be a fight over, like, whose career is going to be made over my trauma, I was like, I want it to be a young woman of color. I was like, I don't want. I love some... you. <laughs> I was like. I was like, right. I was just like, I don't want it to be some like white cis head dude named Brian or Chad or Dennis who's going to have his career made off of like the most yeah. horrible day of my life. But I was like, if it right, I was like, if this is the system that we're in and if this is the conversation that we're having, then like, let's go. I want some like badass woman of color to get her career made, right? And like, she and I can play the game together because yeah. she's gonna know how fucked this is and I'm gonna know how fucked this is, right? And I'm like sobbing and my friend Lauren comes out and I have the post-it note on my fridge and she's like, I hope you're okay, I love you, whatever. And I'm like, this is not okay. Like, this is not okay that I'm having to have like a, whose career are we making? How is this, ha you know, whatever. And right and it's and it, so it was like moments like that and that's where sometimes i'm just like the work everything about this is ridiculous right and it's like so to me it was like i would be inside of a system and realize how truly truly like i don't even have a word but just like i can only really think of the word fucked but like just how truly like hurtful and harmful it was but i like was so had, I was so far away from it also, like, so, I just keep using the word disassociated from it, that, like, I wasn't in it as, like, a victim who had been harmed. I was in it as someone who's, like, we're going to change this. Like, we're, yeah. right? I was, right? I was, like, 10,000 feet above myself. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, I think, like, it's just, and it's one of the, I, like, I truly hadn't thought about that until right now. And it's one of the reasons why now, like, I'm really just, like, this is why I'm saying, I just am trying to do crossword puzzles and I'm just yeah. like right now I'm just like taking a breather because in the span of like 2017 until like 2021, 2022, I lived like 4,000 lives and it was yeah. really intense and really hard. And I truly like don't know how I'm alive. Like I really struggled with my mental health. I really struggled with suicidality and now I'm just like, I have my plants. I like, you know, I'm, I moved out of the city full time, which was helpful. And I'm just like, we're just taking it easy. I'm curious about like, if you're someone who's going through it and trying to figure out their own space, not that anyone really knows what they're doing, but as you think about your own journey of being within the system, trying to change the system, also seeing the humans who make up the system and like saying, okay, like if you're going to use me as a pawn, I'm a player in this game, which it sounds like you did in that moment to saying, I'm a human. I want to do my crossword puzzles. Right. And it, th there are seasons for everything. And often it's very difficult to know, especially when you're at the beginning of your journey, or at least, well, I'm always in this place. If I don't know what my place is in the system, but like, what is the, like, how have you thought through 
the the question of like what do I need right now and also how can I be an activist whether it is talking to the teenagers in my life and doing my crossword puzzles and taking care of me as a person or being the plaintiff in a case or being someone who's coaching other survivors and storytelling right like there's different roles we can all play and it's often very difficult to know where to get started of like which direction do I want to go in yeah I love this question um for me I think it's a lot of um I literally just like ask myself I think of Aminatou So and Anne Friedman of like body's choice like what does your body need and deliver it and so like there are days where I am like up and writing or you know like doing things like I'm much more of a morning person than I am an evening person um and then there are days where it's like I'm not talking to anyone um and I think the excuse me the big thing is is that where I find myself to be most helpful now right like I still to this day might get a lot of press requests or people might come to me to do something and I'm in a phase of just like that sounds like a great opportunity. Here's this person that you should talk to, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a big, like I'm in a big, like pass the mic phase or just like, it was great and I loved it, but, or do something like this where like, I am grateful to have this opportunity and also to like shift the conversation into like, you know, are we talking about this or, you know? um, And then I think for me, like, I have always and forever said that um, like my DMs are open or my social media is open. So like if you were a survivor who is considering filing a lawsuit, who is going to report to the police, um, like I just supported a survivor who was literally like outside the Albuquerque police precinct. And I think she found me on Twitter and was and we just like talked for like two hours she decided that she she just like sat on a bench outside of the police precinct and she was like can I do this can I do this can I record them what should I do I don't know right and like dm'd me on twitter we had a two-hour conversation she went in she called me afterwards we now like text sporadically um and so it's just the idea that I think like for me I felt really alone and like I have an incredible community, but no one in my community had been through what I went through. So like no one in my community had reported a sexual assault, had reported a crime, had like been talking to cops all the time, had filed a lawsuit. And so I, I for me, it's just doing a lot of that work and also making sure that like, I'm, you know, really good at saying no or saying like someone, like someone in my community asked me to hang out last night and I was like, I need to watch the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City reunion and be in bed by 9.30, but thank you. Um, and and so I think that's, it's just like really finding a balance. Um, and also knowing that like, I don't have to prove shit to anyone. Like I don't have to prove to anyone that I'm like dedicated about sexualized violence or that I'm like down <laughs> for the cause, right? Like I don't need to prove to you that I'm passionate. I don't need to prove like, I don't have to prove anything to anyone. Um, and and then I think that the number one thing I think that really for me is like the driving force is just that like I believe and I've heard from literally thousands of survivors that like the thing that we most often want to hear is that what happened to us mattered. Yeah. And sometimes we usually want to hear it from either the person or the institution that harmed us or enabled the harm very often that is not going to happen. 
And so it can feel really cathartic to be on a, on the phone or on a Zoom with someone or FaceTime or in person if, if I can, and to sit across the table from someone and to say, I'm really sorry this happened and what happened to you matters. And if your pathway to justice is filing a lawsuit or talking to the press or going to the police, I'm here to help and support you and to hold your hand in any way possible. But sometimes all that people want is they want to tell a person that they love. And so they really, like a lot of the things that I do is just, right? Like, like I'll never forget a few years ago, there was a high schooler who found me on Instagram and we would talk and like, she would go into her closet because there's a space that she felt safest and there wasn't, like it was good for audio yeah. because she really wanted to tell her parents what happened and she didn't yeah. know how. And so for like six months, we would meet once a week and we would just talk through like how she was going to tell her parents. And that to her is what telling her story publicly meant. And she never wanted to tell cops or a teacher or anyone. She just wanted to tell her parents. And a few, like a year or two later, I got an email from her parents and her parents were just like, we don't know who you are, but we're really grateful. And like, you know, whatever. Right. And like, I don't need that email, but it's just yeah. like, in that container of that family, that's what it was. And so that's like it for me. It's just like, how do we, and the, but great, but like that's activism. Yep. Right. That like she found me, told her family and like no one in her community knows she doesn't want anyone. She could decide one day to write a New York Times yeah. bestseller. Cool. Or she could not. But that to me is like, all that I want to do is to make survivors feel seen not make them to, to help survivors feel seen and loved there's something there's something so powerful in that also uh there just aren't spaces right they're like they're starting to to pop up kind of kind of right like but there aren't lots of spaces especially spaces where you can talk to a human person mm -hmm. as opposed to i don't know like submitting your testimony right like there there are spaces for that there are platforms for that but there are so few spaces where people can turn to someone else and have a conversation and say this happened to me, which is also wild when you think about how many of us have been through some sort of sexual assault. And it's like, it's it's in the, there's a phrase that someone used in a book that has always stayed with me. It's not the shark, it's in the water, or it's the mm -hmm. water, it's not the shark, right? It's all around us. And if people started speaking about it, you'd realize, oh, it's actually all around us. But because there's this like, the shame, and the societal expectations and the silence, it's so hard to find spaces for people. And and to the comment about it's not the shark, it's the water, that like uh, a very dear friend of mine, her name is Beanish. Beanish taught me the term, like there's no hierarchy of pain, right? Like oftentimes in the survivor space, we talk about a hierarchy of trauma, yeah. but Beanish taught me the term, there's no hierarchy of pain. And I like that a little bit more because Oftentimes, like people hear my story and they're like, that's so traumatic. My friend Beanish taught me this term of hierarchy of pain versus hierarchy of trauma. And I love it because it doesn't, trauma, I think people, like it ha it's weighted, it's it's heavy. Yeah. Our pain, right, can be, you know, I love the term like death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we say, you know, it's in the water, it's the idea that like I operate under the assumption or from a space that like, if you are a person who has been socialized as a woman, if you are a queer person, a person of color, um, a trans person, that like you have experienced pain, but specifically like some type of gender-based violence or obviously like racialized violence, right? And 
It doesn't have to be like massive violent trauma. Right. But right. Like it's sort of this, like there will be moments where I will be sharing my story publicly in a room or, you know, something, or just like, even like at a table, like at a dinner party, somehow it might, you know, come up or whatever. Um, and there's like a look, there's a look Mm -hmm. that people, right. And it's literally sort of like the, like the me too look. Um, and to me, it's the idea that like, I, I think sometimes this particularly can happen with like, I don't have a lot of cis straight men in my life, but like if cis straight men are in the room, they'll like, what? Yeah. They're shocked. And I'm like, what rock do you live under? Or like, what conversations are you not having with the women in your life? And what, like who, you know, as I always, I do joke with the teens in my life that like, because one of them is, is a, as right now he identifies as a straight male. I'm like, someone will ask you the question of like, who raised you? And it will be like, the tone will be different. Yeah. And it will, right. It's either going to be like, you know, like he will be with a woman. I, maybe he's mm-hmm. dating her and he will, something will happen and he will like comfort her. Or there's like, you know, this like orange yeah. peel theory thing on TikTok or whatever. Right. And he will, he will like be that. And she'll be like in a moment of like feeling loved and cared and seen for. And she'll say to him like, who raised you and be like, yeah, ha, right. Or it'll be the opposite and he'll have done something egregious and she'll like want to throw something at him and be like, who the fuck raised you? Right. And I think that all the time is like, not, you know, is that like when we are, that's so why I love to be around young people is that like, if I can do activism or whatever, but yeah, like it's one of those things, but we, so many of us experience trauma, pain, harm, but we're not talking about it because we're told that it's not okay to talk about it. There's no space to talk about it or that we have to talk about those like very heavy things. And like my favorite question to ask, and I'll probably ask it at the end of this conversation, but is to ask like, how are you caring for yourself? Mm -hmm. Right. And I love that question because I think it's just the idea that like, we all need to be cared for, but we, I especially love to care for myself. I didn't always, I do now. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's because we all need to be cared for. And especially those of us who have experienced incredible hardship and pain, we might need like an extra like love and, and tender and care. I love that. I also, I just thinking about the, the who raised you and the, the person in the room who, who's like, oh my God, I can't believe. It also like makes that the focus of the con their shock becomes the focus. sorry, this is like a real bugger if I'm like, that becomes the, the conversation, right? Their horror, their shock their like incredulousness that violence mm-hmm. exists in the world around them as opposed to the violence itself right and then it's like it, and then this is my thing is like i have a, a rule like i don't chase people especially men i don't cater especially to men but then yes the entire conversation is then centered around this man and his emotions and his feelings yeah. versus like Hey, do you, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to have, you know, like I'll never, this is a little bit different, but I'll never forget a a close friend of mine had invited me over for a dinner party. And he specifically said to me, I was working in abortion at the time. And he was like, don't talk about abortion. It was him, his girlfriend at the time, and one of his friends and me, four of us. So three women and, and, or three, three women. And he was like, don't talk about abortion because I'm me. I wore a shirt that said everyone loves someone who's had an abortion and a blazer. <laughs> and 
I was like mad at him because I'm like, who the fuck are you to censor what I talk about? Whatever. We're eating dinner and then like casually someone asks me like what I did, etc. And I was like, oh, right. And I was like, you brought it up. Like you, you yep. spoon fed it to me. Mention I work in abortion. By the end of the night, both of those two women shared their abortion stories and we're like crying. We're, we're connecting We're you know, and this dude is just in the kitchen and as I walked out, I was like, one, never fucking tell me what I can or can't talk about. And I was like, two, like, assume that so many people who have the capacity to become pregnant, like, have been pregnant, have experienced a pregnancy loss, have had an abortion, right? And I was just like, this man, this, right? And I think it's, I believe it's the same with sexualized violence, gender-based violence, violence of any kind, right? Like, whether it's workplace harassment, you know, sexual assault attempted sexual assault right and it's just yeah and i'm i'm just like "Mm -mm, honey we're not going to cater to your emotions and you're like wow it's like please go in a room and read like not that bad by roxanne gay and then come back to us and be like i have feelings yeah i i have lots of feelings we could have a whole conversation just Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um i'm curious as like we start to wrap up this conversation for so many people who like do this kind of work, whether it's like doing the work professionally and being paid for it, doing the work with the people in their lives, doing the work and like educating themselves and the media they consume, right? It's all kinds of things. It's very easy to feel despair. And I always like to ask mm-hmm. people who are who are doing the work, like how how are you finding hope and joy? Mm-hmm. Where where does where does that come from for you right now? Yeah, oh, such a great question. Um from when I always think of the quote from Miriam Kaba that hope is a discipline mm. um, and Rebecca Solnit has a really good quote about hope, which is like very similar. Um, but I always think of Miriam's quote of hope is a discipline. Um, and for me, to be honest, it really comes from either a, the young people in my life. Um, and like, if you don't have like young folks in your life, whether it's like infants and or like teens, yeah. um, like find like an opportunity to either like mentor go to your local library like do right there's just um because excuse me their outlook on the world is really wonderful also like they will keep you real fucking humble and that's great um so I think it's that and um and then for me it's also um finding relationships that exist outside of like the work right so like I recently became, uh, met this like amazing couple here in Vermont, um, through a mutual friend in New York and, um, they're this like great queer couple and I love them. And like, sometimes we talk about political things or sometimes we just talk about like, who is better Rihanna or Beyonce and right. And it's like, I love it there. I was just saying to them when I saw them on, on Sunday night that like they're this like new budding friendship is like truly giving me so much hope when, um, you know, where, uh, when like it's, you know, dark outside at 430 in, in the state of Vermont. Um, and then I think also the other thing is, is that like, find things that bring you joy, like no matter what it is, right. I've gotten like a friend of mine gifted me some Dutch ovens recently, and I've gotten like really in to just like making food in the, right. And it's, I think sometimes, 
we as a society, particularly in America, but like we think that things need to be like capitalized. So like if you pick up a hobby, you then have to make money off of it or like you have to tell everyone about your hobby or whatever. And it's like, just do whatever you want. Um, And yeah, but like going to bed early, getting really into my skincare routine um, or like it's things like that that I've gotten you know, like reading really good books. Um, so yeah, I, it's like very, very minimal. Right. Um, but like, those are the things that I just like keep going back to. Um, and then otherwise I think it's, it's just like staying connected to people. Um, as my therapist really teaches, like has taught me that like being in relationship with others is like the most healing thing. Mm. Um, and so I was very hesitant to that at first and now I'm really seeing the side effects, the good positive side effects. Um, But yeah, I I think it's also the idea that knowing that like we as individuals don't have to be in charge of making all the change. Mm. And I think so often when we are in moments of despair, we can can get into these moments of thinking like, I have to change this. Like it's all on me. I have to do something. And I think um, whether it's like seeing what's happening in Palestine, whether it's seeing what's a, a, I'm like, I'm obviously I'm in America. So whether it's like an upcoming 2024 presidential election, right. Whether it's all of these things. And then sometimes it can like lead us to a moment of like paralyzation. And I think it's the idea that like, know that having a simple conversation or sharing with someone and saying like, I'm having a really hard time and I can't even describe why I'm feeling so upset or, I want to do something, but I can't, but like sharing those feelings and having it be lifted from you can feel incredible. Um, and knowing that like, you don't have to do everything. Like none of us can do anything alone. That is, that, that, that leads so well into my final question. And the thing that, that feels often like the, the, like the beginning, the end of everything is just like a, None of us can, none of us are supposed to do it all, right? Or be able to change the system because otherwise something is really broken. Um, but the sense of like, I, for, for some, like our listenership viewership is very young. So, you know, like a 21 year old, right? Or like an 18 year old who's like, your people, they're like in it and they want to do something. They want to change the system. They can see it's broken. And it's so daunting sometimes to, to know where to start or what to do and like, we call this little revolutions because it doesn't have to be the big things, right? It's the mm-hmm. the daily small things. It's the conversations we have. But if you were giving advice to one of the young people in your life who came to you and was like, Allison, I don't, don't know where to start. What do I do? I want to make a change. I want to use my voice. I want to, or not, right? I want to, I want to do something and I don't know where to start. What would you say to them? One, I love young people. It's my favorite question ever. Um, and I think for me, it's, it's, I would literally ask them, like, are you talking to the people in your community? And what I mean is, like, are you talking to your Instagram followers or people who follow you on TikTok or probably a social media site that I don't know exists? Um, Or are you talking to your parents or your grandparents, right? Or your barista or, you know, I think it's like little revolutions start at home. And like, I'll speak from personal experience, right? That like when I came out as queer, my family, but especially my mom had a very hard time with it. And it took us some time. And, you know, there were a couple of years where like, we weren't really speaking and it was just right. It caused some fractures. Um, and when I came out as non-binary a few months ago, 
you know, I had a lot more grace for my mom and I was like, you know, I'm changing something here and, you know, we're, it's, we're, I'm going to be patient, etc. Um, but my mom is like great. And it's just like, cool, I'm going to need some time, whatever. And I just visited my parents at their house and my mom had like the, a postcard for their local pride parade in March. My mom was like, your dad and I are going to go. It's going to be great. And I was like, love this for you. Cool. Right. But I just think that like we so often like for young folks, like know that like revolutionizing your community, like I'm going to speak from a very like American centric space, but like what's happening like on your local school board right? Like who is running for office in your local, like, you know, who's your mayor, who's your, you know, city council person and like wherever your community is, the, the like similar elected office. But I know like in the U S we have a huge issue with book banning, right? So like school board elections are like what matters the most. Go to a local school board um, meeting, make sure that your voice is heard there. Right. Um, and like educate us also like what is your sex ed curriculum i would want to know what's being taught in my school regarding sex ed and like how can you make your voice heard there right like revolutionize your school and that is where i think it's like that you have so much power like um the two teens in my life one of their friends was on there was a seat for students on their local school board Mm. and i would see and if there isn't a seat on your local school board for students don't actually riot, but like low key riot and be like, uh, we want to be represented. Like, why aren't we being represented here? Right. Um, and then my other question is like, if you're really into disability justice, I would find out like what, uh, like someone that I love is on a 504 plan and an, you know, like an, and like an, or an IEP or, you know, um, and there's like a disability justice, um, mm-hmm. frame to that. I would find out what disability justice and access looks like in your school. And those of you who might not have a disability, how can you support and show up for those kids in your school um, who do have a disability or who are disabled? Anything from like, you know, dyslexia um, to like, what does wheelchair access in your school look like, right? So there's like so many ways and so many different um, entryways into this that like literally can happen inside your community. Also, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but my last one would also be like, um, I would find out if there are any unpaid uh, lunches in your school. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what will happen is that kids or like at the local library, if there are any like overpaid uh, library, like overdue library books. And I would see like, particularly if you're a kid who comes from privilege, like it might be $5, right? But like some kids can't graduate if they have overdue library books. So there are just so many ways in your like truly, truly small town that you can show up for kids. Um, And yeah, you can revolutionize your school and your town. I love that. You you just made it so like tangible as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. It's like, where, how? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I I mean, again, shout out to the teens in my life. Um, I won't name them because I don't want to embarrass them, but um, I have, oh, when I think about them, I love them so much I could cry. Um, but like having teens in my life and it was a part of my chosen family and like being a part of their lives and seeing how they live, how they move through the world, um, like they make, they help me to be better at the work that I do. Um, and I think it's also, it does have to be tangible, right? Because like, you know, you can't say to someone like, oh, 
Like, run for a, a president one day. And it's like, y'all, honey, teenagers' lives change every 30 yeah. minutes. And so, like, that's not good, right? And it's like, that's not accessible. And also, yep. like, if you're an immigrant, you can't run for office. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, but I'd be like, if you're going to a party this weekend, right? Like, can you talk about liberatory harm reduction? And if someone makes an offhanded comment that is racist, right? Like, can you learn to call them in and not call them out? And don't don't make them feel like an asshole. They just, like, truly might not know. They might not know. And you might just want to be like, hey, uh, Parker, do you know that what you just said is racist? And can I talk to you over here? And Parker might be like, I didn't know that. I'm really sorry. I heard it in a song. Cool. Never going to say it again. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? No, this was incredible. Thank you so much. I feel Thank so you. hopeful after this. Oh my God. I thought I saying um and also that's like maybe one of the greatest compliments i've ever received <laughs> you just like I, I feel like it's all gonna be okay not that it wasn't but i'm just like yeah, yeah be okay so yeah. thank you for that yeah of course thank you for sharing this space and being in community with me i really appreciate it thank you so much for listening and thank you for, to allison for this wonderful conversation to learn more about them and their work check out our show notes Thank you for listening to Little Revolutions, a podcast brought to you by Frida. I'm Masuma Ahuja, your host and head of content here at Frida. This episode was produced by Claire Richardson and Marta Mazur and edited by Holly Galloway.